The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. In the last episode, we discussed the aftermath of the February strike, how the union grew not only within the Minneapolis coal yards, but also to the trucking industry as a whole. This only increased tensions between capital and labor, because while the coal yard workers were now in a semi-recognized union, everyone else was not. The socialists and the strike leaders had proven correct that there was widespread desire among the city's working class to overturn the city's open shop reputation. In the run-up to the strike, they had hosted a mass assembly to garner further support, as well as force former labor governor Floyd B. Olson to take their side. Although he did not show up, his letter was a clear message that 574 had his support so long as they stuck to a quote-unquote sensible course. In any case, with the strike authorization vote in hand, 574 and their enemies, the Citizens Alliance, the mayor and police chief, and the Teamsters National President, prepared for the battle to come. But as with the February strike, the May strike was preceded by futile attempts by the Regional Labor Board to negotiate a settlement between the two opposing parties. Despite their defeat in the last strike, the Citizens Alliance was not particularly well organized to confront their adversaries, their wage scale proposal having not diffused worker agitation as they had hoped. Now, though, the Citizens Alliance established an informal front group called the Employers' Advisory Committee, EAC. The EAC consisted of two representatives from each industry that employed truckers, with the power to act on behalf of its group. A steering committee to handle negotiations was led by CA Director Joseph Cochran. A strike-breaking committee was run by the Citizens Alliance Vice Presidents Schroeder and McAloon. Sam Levy, the attorney who had advised and negotiated on behalf of the Citizens Alliance in the February strike, as well as the upholsterer strike, amalgamated clothing worker strike, and the ice wagon driver strike, reassumed his post. Thus, in the end, the EAC was controlled by the Citizens Alliance. Albert Strong, the co-founder of the CA we discussed all the way back in Episode 2, remained its president. The Citizens Alliance, through the EAC, pulled an important maneuver prior to negotiations. Local 574 had intended to strike only 11 firms. If this were not challenged, it was likely to be fairly easy for the union to win. The balance of forces between 11 corporations and over 3,000 unionists was simply in 574's favor. Thus, the EAC expanded their representation from only 11 to 166 firms, two-thirds of which were in the transfer, lumber, and food industries. This had a number of benefits for the bosses. They could say that the union did not represent a majority of the workers in the firms they represented. They could spread the union's forces thinner, making it more difficult to maintain both stationary and cruising pickets, and they could induce more public sympathy simply because attempting to shut down 166 companies does a lot more to disturb a city than a mere 11. Thus, the Citizens Alliance, fearful of the so-called communist plot to win union recognition, took a longer-term view. 
Local 574 needed to be crushed immediately. Historian Philip Korth described this tactic this way, quote, Ironically, the EAC strategy implied that the confrontation between 11 trucking firms and their workers was, in reality, a dialectical struggle between two classes, a struggle that might determine the form and quality of life in the entire community of Minneapolis, end quote. That is, whereas Local 574 seemed to want to build the union a sector at a time, the Citizens' Alliance recognized and brought into physical reality the heart of this dispute, class warfare. But before war could begin, a parley had to be conducted. Both sides, including the rank-and-file workers, knew that no settlement would be reached. Indeed, Albert Strong later told Charles Walker that not only could he not have imagined dealing with a leader of 574, he could not conceive negotiating with any AFL leader in the city. On the other side, an organizer told Walker that, knowing the bosses would never recognize the union, quote, we prepared at the very beginning for a fight which we knew was inevitable, end quote. But those outside the dispute may not have recognized the strike's inevitability. Thus, each party tried to expose weaknesses, win over the public, and gather allies. The labor board, the governor, and the public were all underestimating the bosses' inflexibility and the unionists' tenacity. The first face-to-face meeting took place in the office of Secretary Hughes of the Minneapolis-St. Paul Regional Labor Board. Both sides had learned, especially in February, that the labor board had no real power, but could be an important ally in the courts of public opinion. Because it worked on behalf of the state, however, just like the police, 574 was especially wary, given the labor board's predilection towards law and order rather than justice. The first meeting went nowhere. The EAC accused the union of not actually representing as many workers as they claimed among their 166 firms. I will note here that this was, of course, the case. The union had never claimed to have organized a majority of 166 firms. Thus, the accusation was just a disingenuous rhetorical trick. The union, in turn, demanded to know the 166 firms that the EAC represented, which had remained secret. Cochran, the director of the Citizens' Alliance and head negotiator for the EAC, claimed to not have the authority to share that information. Thus, the meeting ended a dud. Two days later, on May 3rd, the EAC responded that they still could not identify any specific firm, though that they represent, quote, industrial and business groups employing truck drivers in the city of Minneapolis. Thus, they provided no new information. On May 5th, Secretary Hughes asked who fits under the category wholesale houses and packing houses, to which he received no response. For a second meeting on May 7th, the union submitted a list of workers they claimed to represent, as well as its demands for wage scales and improved working conditions, but asked the labor board to withhold the information until the closed shop question resolved. The EAC sent no one to the meeting, refusing to meet with the union and declaring its opposition to the closed shop. And just to reiterate, a closed shop would mean any employee of these businesses would need to be a member of Local 574. An open shop meant membership within the union was optional today's right to work. The second episode of the series demonstrated that the closed shop was the only way forward for the city's labor movement. The EAC also informed the labor board that its limited cooperation was out of courtesy, not legal obligation. In a written statement released to the public, the EAC declared that it did not recognize 574 as, quote, truly representing the employees of the firms and the groups for whom we appear, end quote, 
that 574's demands violate Section 7A and that they would remain right-to-work shops. The closed shop was, quote-unquote, definitely rejected. By Wednesday, May 9th, the parties were in deadlock. Workers made bets amongst themselves on whether or not a deadline would pass without a strike. 574, however, issued a deadline, bringing the issue to the newspapers on May 10th, while on the 11th, the Citizens' Alliance issued an internal bulletin warning of the impending strike. The Labor Board once again tried to meet with the EAC, but were told that Cochran had left town for the weekend so that they would have to wait for his return. Exasperated, the Labor Board's chairman, Democrat Neil Cronin, requested a mediator from the National Labor Board to be sent from Washington. While he still hoped that differences could be settled, the union on May 13th called for a mass meeting the following evening. On that morning, the Minneapolis Tribune, one of the city's major newspapers, quoted both the EAC and Bill Brown that the closed shop was the big issue. The Labor Board, Local 574, and the EAC held an informal meeting at the Nicollet Hotel, in which, again, nothing was accomplished except to annoy Labor Board Chairman Cronin. In the afternoon, however, Local 574 repeated its February tactic of withdrawing the closed shop demand. Instead, they demanded, quote, reaffirmation of Section 7A, for a priority rule in layoffs and rehiring, for a board of arbitration, and that employers sign this agreement with the union, end quote. That is, the demand was now mostly to recognize Local 574. The EAC responded by declaring that they had no legal obligation to do so and refused to meet again. The Labor Board issued a public statement, quote, No conciliatory move of any kind whatsoever at any time was made by the employers. They even avoided meeting with the board on Friday and Saturday, end quote. Indeed, the Labor Board saw no reason why EAC should reject 574's most recent proposal. While the Citizens' Alliance may have had the upper hand in the court of public opinion when the closed shop was the source of deadlock, they now lost it. It was the Citizens' Alliance and the EAC, not the Union, that were refusing to play along peacefully. In response, the organizing committee of Local 574 decided to go through with the strike. As Scoglin later told Charles Mumford Walker, quote, We discussed very carefully the May decision. Only by all the sections of the trucking industry acting together did we have a chance to win anything for any one of them. We knew very well that this unity would tie up the city. And although what we were striking for was the right of collective bargaining guaranteed to us by law, we knew that if we failed, the Citizens' Alliance would succeed in pinning prison sentences on all of us. It was a real decision, end quote. Therefore, recognizing the gravity of the situation, Local 574 went all out to prepare for victory. Unfortunately, they would receive no help once again from their own national union. While Local 574 negotiated with the EAC, it also had to negotiate with its own union leadership at the Teamster International. Local 574 formally requested permission to strike. Teamsters President Dan Tobin denied their request. He also reminded them that they had no permission to organize the inside workers. Thus, the conflicting relationship between the local and international established earlier in the year returned, but in this round, it would spiral. At this point, Tobin worked with the AFL to kick 574 out of the Minneapolis Central Labor Union. When an official arrived in Minneapolis to inform the CLU that if they did not refuse to seat the local's delegates, the AFL would revoke its charter, a member of the CLU reportedly suggested on the floor 
to throw this AFL official down the stairs head first. But 574 withdrew its delegate to preempt a vote on its expulsion and to save the CLU from the AFL's threats. Instead, 574 continued to organize informally within the labor unions. Without the support of their own union, Local 574 had to build the connections that would help them sustain a strike. Shutting down the city's trucking operations was intentionally a mass disturbance, inconveniencing much of the city's residents. It was the very same strategic importance of their sector that could turn the public against them. To account for this, the local made extensive efforts to reach out to sympathetic groups, other unions, the farmers, the women, and the unemployed. The leadership trained workers to speak publicly, visiting other unions to garner support among the city's rank and file. They also worked with the editor of the Minneapolis Labor Review to garner further public and union support. By May 20th, the union received over $15,000 in donations, which is over $200,000 in today's money. The milk drivers of one Teamster local gave $2,000. No note here that Governor Olson himself donated $500 to the cause. Because 574 was intending to focus the strike at the city's grocery stores and markets to disturb the delivery of fresh produce, they needed to ensure that the farmers had their backs. Organizers made use of their connections with the leadership of the Farmers' Holiday Association, those radical farmers I discussed in Episode 3. While the union initially screwed this up, they later fixed the situation by allowing farmers to deliver to small grocers into a 574-controlled market. Residents could continue to eat, while the farmers continued to sell their crop, but the large businesses wouldn't be skimming the profits in the middle. The Teamsters also adopted a recent innovation coming out of some Illinois strikes, a women's auxiliary. The trucking industry was completely dominated by men. Relatively few, if any, women drove the city's trucks. But the men did have wives, girlfriends, mothers, sisters, daughters. Women, too, were employed in other sectors of the city economy. Thus, for the strike to be representative of the struggle for the working class, the fight needed to include more than just the men. It needed to include the women. Because we will dedicate an episode to this force, we will discuss more of its origins and tactics as well as significance then. What can be said now is that while progressive innovation and class struggle, this was not exactly women's liberation. Rather, they replicated their traditional feminine roles, but in support of militant action rather than keeping up the home. Women would staff the strike headquarters, handle telephones, volunteer as nurses and nursing assistants, and would make thousands of meals per day for strikers and their families. These roles, however, did not prevent some of the women from participating directly in strike actions, as we will see. Its leaders were Marvel Shaw, the wife of Farrell Dobbs, and Claire Dunn, the wife of Grant Dunn. And like I said, we will discuss this in a lot more detail a couple of episodes from now. There was particular concern regarding the role the unemployed would play. Would they support the employed union workers in their strike, or would they hire themselves out as strikebreakers and scabs? Given that Hennepin County had an estimated 30,000 unemployed, approximately one-third of the city population when their families were counted, their decision en masse could win the strike or ensure defeat. And, as mentioned earlier, the unemployed were politically mobilized, with a protest of over 10,000 on April 6th and thousands marching on City Hall on May Day. But the Trotskyists of the Communist League continued their tactic, recognizing the unemployed as members of the working class and as potential allies. With that in mind, 574 organized an unemployed section within the Union, fought for public relief, and consulted the movement's leaders when forming the strike plans, 
inviting the unemployed to participate directly in actions. And so they would. One of Local 574's most impressive feats was its strike headquarters at 1900 Chicago Avenue, outfitted in only a few days of work. Knowing how combative and explosive the impending strike was likely to be, the union renovated this garage, formerly a stable, into what Trotskyist leader James Cannon called, quote-unquote, a fortress of action. It was a flat, two-storied building, 400 feet wide and a block long. The organizers and rank-and-file worked together to ensure it could facilitate everything strikers would need. Union carpenters and plumbers installed gas stoves, sinks, and serving counters so as to feed the thousands of strikers and their families who were soon to not receive any pay, whether from their bosses or from the Teamsters International. The Women's Auxiliary took on the duties of cooking and serving meals, trained by the Cooks and Waiters Union on how to do so en masse. The Women's Auxiliary would also help in the General Office and Dispatching Office, respectively the former toll room and front office, typing up and mimeographing instructions and updates, signing up new union members, and communicating with the cruising pickets out in the field. The lead dispatchers were to be Vincent Ray Dunn and Farrell Dobbs. The strike headquarters also included a hospital, directed by Mrs. Vera McCormack, staffed by Dr. H.P. McCrimmon, two university interns, three trained nurses, and volunteers from the Women's Auxiliary. This fortress also included an auto shop, staffed with skilled mechanics to repair and tune up the cruising picket vehicles, along with a tire repair service and gasoline storage. They made sure to push the cars in and out of the garage to prevent fumes and pollution emitted by idling automobiles. As the Minneapolis Tribune reported, quote, The strike headquarters are everything but a fort, and might easily be converted into one should that occasion come. End quote. On Monday evening, May 14th, two and a half thousand workers, the women's auxiliary, and sympathizers assembled in Eagles Hall. The organizers reported to the workers on the EAC's antics with the labor board and their refusal to even recognize the union. Bill Brown motivated a speech in favor of a strike, and Marvel Scholl, representing the women's auxiliary, pledged their support. In a standing vote, thousands of workers affirmed their decision to strike against 166 Minneapolis bosses. The second Teamster strike of 1934 was set to begin Wednesday, May 16th. The goal, in Bill Brown's words, was to, quote, tie up every wheel in the city. The Citizens Alliance, for its part, declared before 2,000 businessmen in its strike headquarters at the West Hotel that a mass movement may be required to save the city. And thus, Minneapolis watched two irreconcilable class forces prepare for combat. Ray Dunn offered his perspective in the Communist League's newspaper, The Militant, published May 12th, titled, Minneapolis Union Prepares for Action. 3,000 transport workers organize forces to fight for demands. I will quote Ray Dunn at length. Quote, In the hands of the men who drive the trucks and vans, the delivery equipment of a modern city lays a mighty power. Not a whit less important or powerful are the men who transport and serve the gasoline and oil which makes this vast industry a living thing. Taken together with that numerous and important strata of workers who store, preserve, and warehouse the food that constitutes the daily ration of the people, we have a group of workers whose social importance is enormous. That these workers in the gasoline stations and in the warehouses, on the market, in the paper trade, in the food stores, as well as the helpers and drivers of the trucks in the various lines, have now realized the strategic position they hold 
is apparent to every worker who looks to union organization for help. During the past several weeks, these workers have streamed by the hundreds into General Drivers Union number 574. More than 3,000 have been enrolled. They have not merely joined the union. With the leadership of a capable and experienced organization committee, they have grouped themselves along several main lines according to type of job and have set up committees to carry on the detail work. These rank-and-file committees have functioned with whirlwind speed. They have acted with the dispatch evident everywhere when serious workers set themselves to serious tasks. The monumental detail work turned out, the research work accomplished under severely adverse conditions, the precise schedules drawn up, the manifold demands formulated in conjunction with the continuous organization campaign carried on at all times, will stand as a monument to the union loyalty and sincerity of the workers who have taken the lead. And by the same token, they will also stand as an accomplishment that gives the sharp and proper answer to the contented labor officials who sat back in their chairs and said, it can't be done. Today, the General Drivers Union is the largest and by far the most important union in the city. It numbers in its ranks thousands of militant and determined workers. It takes in as members, besides the drivers and helpers, gas and oil workers, truckers, wrappers, counter and platform men, etc. In short, those workers who are daily connected with the machinery of street transportation and delivery. That the coal yard workers are members of this union need mention only for the benefit of those workers who do not live in Minneapolis. For the benefit of workers in other sections, we make a note. The present sweeping campaign of organization was planned and launched by the coal yard workers, the Vanguard. These same loyal workers are again giving the best they have to the union. It goes without saying that they have been reinforced by a veritable army of eager and militant workers from all of the other sections. These new workers not only supplement the older and more experienced workers, but take responsible posts and leading roles in the general work. The agitation and organizational work spreads out in the hands of these willing workers with more and more efficiency and for the bosses with terrifying speed. The labor boards, when they act at all, shuffle back and forth between the bosses and the workers' spokesmen. They stand between. They talk of peaceful settlements. They talk with tongue in cheek. No reliance can be placed in labor boards, nor the decisions that come from them. We rely upon the union, upon the workers' organizations. It can be made strong by an alert and militant membership and by a fighting policy. The workers organized in the union occupy a strategic position in industry. They have power to win their demands. The position this gives them in the trade union movement in Minneapolis is one of central importance for too little aid, to say nothing of consideration, has been given to the local by the other unions. With one or two notable exceptions, the officials of the other unions act as though we were in the way. This attitude must be changed. It is a menace to the whole labor movement. The general drivers can and must be made the cornerstone for the trade union structure as a whole. This cornerstone is not yet in place. The entire workers' movement will see to this job and bring the unions into action to this end. The General Drivers Union is faced with a vast problem, faced with a real struggle. Not a workers' organization, not a single worker, will hold back. Strike with united forces. The trade unions, as a unit, must back this fight to victory. End quote. This is 1934, Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening.